It's time to open your mind and expand your empire. You're listening to The Ted Huff Show. Join in for stories that embrace imperfections and become the inspiration you need to achieve true greatness in your life through actionable progress in the pursuit of self-discovery, self-improvement, and self-purpose. Where will your story take you? Now let's get it started with the man himself, your host, Ted Huff. Welcome to episode number five of The Ted Huff Show. Today we have Jonathan Prisbel, the owner of Proof Bread Company. He's a serial entrepreneur and he'll be going through his humbling connection to the mind, body, people, and his persistence to surpass every summit that he's encountered. Also, you'll find out who Harriet is, so stay tuned. The first thing I want to do is just kind of get everybody understanding who you are um, and this is, this is not that simple high-level question of, of what do you do, but more of who is John? Growing up, uh, I played tennis competitively. I started at age 10, took kind of hold of that. Uh, prior to that, uh, I played guitar and viola, and you start to see sort of a pattern of many interests. Uh, as a teenager, I often wondered what I would do when I was older. And, and part of the problem that I had was I found interest in a lot of different things. Uh, finally, when I did get to college, um, I started to change my major a bunch. Uh, I was a Bible major, dropped that. Uh, I was an education major for a second. Uh, kinesiology, I stuck with that one for maybe two semesters. Uh, <laughs> Then I landed on cultural anthropology, uh, but life was always a fast-paced endeavor for me. Uh, at 16, I got you know, my first job. Uh, I lasted two weeks as a sandwich maker at Quiznos. Uh, I got my first paycheck. Wait a, se- wait a second. Quiznos, and now you're making bread. Maybe it's full circle. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Uh, got my first paycheck at Quiznos. I was working for like $5.50 an hour. And I just felt like I could do better. Uh, I had worked fairly hard for a couple of weeks. And I was disappointed that the paycheck was under $100 or something uh, after taxes were taken out. So then I, taxes. <laughs> then I went worked for IHOP uh, as a server. Uh and also sort of dissatisfied with kind of the upward mobility as a 16-year-old, uh, started kind of scheming for, for business opportunity. Uh, didn't have very many expenses at that point, so I put away $800 from IHOP and bought myself a tennis stringer, which is still out you know, in the front over there. It's this uh, industrial thing. Uh, I got it on eBay and... I started going around soliciting people to string their tennis rackets. Uh, Where did all of this, this, this hustle and, and all of the, the ideas around really trying a bunch of different things. And I mean, you, you talked about tennis and getting very proficient in that. Where did, where did that focus and that drive come from? I think it certainly comes from my parents. Uh, there's no question. Uh, embracing their story. They immigrated here when they were 29 and didn't speak English. Uh, They were looking for opportunity. Uh, Growing up in a communist uh, Poland, they felt capped and they also felt politically capped. They they weren't really politically active. My mom was a 
principal in a school, which she loved doing. And she had to actually sign on to the Communist Party to keep her job eventually. And they were done at that point. And so they left. I spent a year and a half in Austria uh, in a political refugee camp. Uh, then they came here. They were in Chicago. Uh, they showed up with $50. They both worked multiple jobs. There's for a huge Polish community in Chicago. Yeah, for sure. So they were amongst, you know, their peers when they first arrived. They lived kind of the Polish area. I didn't grow up in that area, though. I grew up kind of in, in a mixed suburb with, you know, uh, not so many uh, immigrants. Uh, but by the time I was born... It was something like, uh, I think, eight years after their uh, initial arrival. And their life had started coming together slowly but surely. My dad tried a bunch of things. And uh, he ultimately landed on a business that embraced a lot of his skill set. Uh, he wound up with, I think, something like 11 employees working for him by the end. And... I grew up in that. I grew up in the highlight time of his career. Okay. My sister grew up, my sister is 14 years older than me, was eight when they immigrated. So our childhood experience was fundamentally different. Uh, but I think that initial seed for changing and trying different things until something works certainly comes from them. Uh, not being afraid of that changing environment, which is somewhat I've come to find uncommon. A lot of people are afraid of change. Uh, on this team right now that I work with, even my wife, uh, I've come to find that I can't just change things on a whim because <laughs> not everybody is as accommodating to that. And, and that's probably a more sane approach to life, to be honest. Um, so tennis stringing led to tennis teaching uh, in my late teens. Uh, and those were my first businesses. Uh, I got a taste of what it was like to put something together that didn't exist in that community, reach a new market, and as a result, do a lot better than I otherwise would as some assistant teaching pro working for minimum wage at a club, which I was doing simultaneously. And the beginnings of my journey up until recently were always multiple things going on all at once, trying to juggle multiple things. It, and really, up until last December, I was doing that even with Proof. Uh, Amanda left her job with Proof uh, in, in April. So really... At this point, it's somewhat of recent history that I'm able to really focus just on one thing. Uh, and I've preferred that my, my entire career. I've preferred doing what I need to do to make a living, but always on the side, having something that I was passionate about and developing. Uh, and there hasn't been a moment since I was a teenager where there wasn't something brewing uh, in the background. Even now with proof, there's there's other ideas brewing. Yeah. You, you and I have talked about a couple <laughs> ideas. So yeah, I, I completely understand the, the, the having the core focus on, on what's generating the income, but at the same time, looking at other things that can fulfill the, the, the inner desire to learn and to grow. Cause I think that's something you and I have talked about that we have a very similar 
piece around? Is it the consistent and continual learning about new things, different things, and trying to figure out how can I apply that to what I've got going on in my life? What I fear about this personality type in myself is, am I aging my brain? Is, is, that, is that possible? Because I'm sort of wondering whether a calmer, more stable personality uh, on a psychological level would lead to a longer life. I, I don't know. <laughs> but I'm hoping I'm hoping that that hypothesis is proven false uh, or technology advances to deal with um, but the best thing that's happened in recent times is the discovery of kind of calming myself through meditation, uh, which I, I do think we all have limits. Uh, I've started to discover those limits, especially with proof, but you know it's it's one thing to work hard mentally when you're not working as hard physically, which was kind of the case in previous businesses that I've been a part of. This is really both. So, so let, let's kind of dive into that a little bit deeper because uh, one of the things I think is really interesting is that you, you went from software to soft bread. <laughs> so, so, so kind of help, help, under, help us understand, you know, the, uh, the similarities, the differences, and, and what, what the software world taught you that you were able to bring into, into the artisanal bread-making um, endeavor that you're in today with Proof. I would tell everyone that it's all connected. Tennis to, to my previous business, which was mystery shopping, to mystery shopping software, to bread it's all one journey. And even though it seems like these are all polar opposite extremes in, in the middle of that sandwich in there was taxi dispatch software and some other, I had started a composting business. That was actually the first inkling of being a part of the local economy, being a part of what I would say is kind of the tangible economy, something that you can sort of see all the different layers and how they work together. Uh, Along this whole journey of entrepreneurship, I really wanted to see my impact on a local level. I, I got that with teaching tennis uh, and sort of got the bug for uh, working in a community and working with uh, similar people all the time, uh, working towards a goal with people that I knew. And then software sort of happened because my brain took me there. Um, I was working for money as a video mystery shopper. It was quite lucrative while I was teaching tennis. And I came to find that what I was doing was somewhat unique. I had scaled on my own a bunch of different pieces of technology and video to make it streamlined. And, and as an individual, I was doing more at a higher scale than than companies were in video mystery shopping and so the people around me were advising me well you should make this into a business my heart i can't say was in it at the same time i was trying to start a composting company that still exists today and uh doing a bunch of other things uh so i think that what led to mystery shopping software was as intellectually stimulated by solving problems and 
I think that that's really kind of a key to entrepreneurship is solving problems and looking at looking at things from a unique lens, also being willing to execute ideas that other people will leave as an idea due to all the barriers that exist towards its execution. Uh, I found that to be extremely stimulating. So, so what I'm hearing is, is the, the fact that there are barriers to, to getting it done. That that's, that's, that's kind of a, a driver for you. It's like to, it, because it's not easy because it doesn't just happen that that's the one thing that, that gets you excited about an endeavor is because it, it just doesn't happen. That and also a distorted reality of seeing <laughs> the end way before. And it's never actually the end, but I think I've visualized something that might be years away. And to me, it seems really close. Uh, over time, I've gotten a little bit more realistic and I've actually learned how to function in an extended cycle of improvement up until software, I would argue where the, the summit kept growing, you know, false summit after false summit and the software project keeps growing. I learned patience in that business. Uh, and now I think I'm well set up for something like this, uh, which really does require patience to grow organically. But to your point on um, barriers, I was still technically married uh, on a path towards divorce. You know, my wife and I were separated when I met Amanda and I had two kids and immediately saw that her and I had a connection that was not common. Uh, it was deep from day one. It, we just clicked. Our backgrounds clicked. Uh, her being Lebanese and having a lot of the foreign roots. But then there was insane barriers. Uh, on my first date with her, I didn't tell her that I was soon to be divorced with two kids. I waited to the second date. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Amanda. Uh, and then, of course, we sort of went through this period of, is this going to work? And, and I'm sure in her mind, uh, she, she saw this as a really unique thing as well, but perhaps a temporary thing because of all the barriers. Uh, I saw those barriers as opportunity and just immediately started busting down walls. Uh, so your entrepreneurial <laughs> spirit of seeing opportunity and just pushing through it kind of moved over to the relationships. For sure. For sure. Uh, relationships though, take two people together working on something. Uh, Amanda was somehow embracing of this. It, she didn't understand my persistence at first. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so but that was really the, the key to sort of maybe initial success. Then as life normalized, I certainly had to learn balance. Uh, life can't be lived in this sort of constant state of change. And while I'm somewhat comfortable in that constant state of change, you don't build teams that way. You know, forget relationships for a second if everything's in constant flux, 
so it it sounds like like moving into proof has, has given you some some ability to look back at a bunch of different things and maybe it's adjusted your perception i'm going to use you know some buzzwords here but your perception of what hustle and grind really means and how it really affects and how to actually use it right i think the last year has been the most reflective year of my life i've processed emotional traumas for the first time uh it's sort of because i found my physical and mental limit in proof mm-hmm. i also found all of the people who worked for me's physical and mental limit and trying to lead everyone through that trying to figure out what to do with with this as a as a as a business it's been humbling making bread is extremely humbling uh so would you say that now you've come to a different level of vulnerability not only with yourself but all of your relationships and and all of the people that you associate yourself with i think that often people that lead businesses i certainly did have a discomfort with showing some of their faults publicly uh they fear that their clients might you know judge them differently or view them differently they feel like they fear that uh wearing sort of their faults outwardly might compromise their ability to you know negotiate or to push past i think i've certainly come to grips with my own humanity and and its limitations uh also my own human ability to make a product with my hands and i've come to love the lack of perfection in it although i'm always driving towards a more perfect loaf there's a book there in the background that i was handed when we first uh took over proof uh it's by yeah it says bread uh and he actually has some passages this is by Jeffrey Hamelman who just a year later I had no idea that that I'd be able to bake with this guy just a year later but in Washington last month at grain gathering I spent an afternoon baking with this man who I was given this book as kind of a bible towards bread uh and he sort of talks about he talks about the baker's hands it's a passage early in the book uh it's sort of like a poetic passage on what it's like to continually strive towards this perfect loaf of bread that you want to happen but you also don't want to happen because if you attain it what else is there to do and so you're always reaching for this perfect loaf of bread that you secretly hope will never arrive this <laughs> kind of an interesting thing where you you, you think about it That's uh, striving for perfection, but secretly not wanting to get there. I've come to find with people that have an entrepreneurial personality, there often is also a pairing with sort of being self-abusing, because we were never quite satiated with our own performance. Uh, 
at least it's, at least that's been my experience and the experience that I've found is sort of commonplace in others. Uh, working 16 hours straight over blocks of dough that are extraordinarily temperature sensitive, you know, within within five degrees, you, you've got to nail it throughout the whole process. You got to keep it there throughout the whole process against a really hot room. It, what is it in it's here? 86 right now. The oven is not on. Uh, <laughs> there's nothing happening right now. Right. Uh, this is this is calm as far as the temperature in here. Uh, pastries have to be kept in the 60s. That that butter has to be pliable. If it gets too hard, it starts to crack, and the layers are all messed up. If it's too cold, you can't spread it thinner and thinner because what's happening is I'm taking what starts with a block of butter and it ends up spreading out into 81 really tiny, you know, smaller than a millimeter layers. Uh, we're doing this all by hand. That process is so intellectually stimulating to get right. You know, when we first started, Jared, the founder of Proof, um, it took him so long to perfect croissants. He said, you know, Maybe this summer you guys ought to just practice on them and, and work on bread, you know, for production. Somehow Amanda and I had a knack for them to a degree that he said, no, I take that back. You're doing just fine. These are so much better than when I started. How did proof happen? Because last time you and I, and, and we, we just reconnected recently, but last time you were in software and now you're in, in soft bread, as I mentioned before. <laughs> so, so how... How did how did that happen? Because they seem so different to me. Yeah. Uh, quick background on why I would have even been looking for opportunity. I mentioned earlier that I went through divorce, and divorce is painful. I really don't recommend it. Uh, <laughs> one of the one of the problematic things about being a business owner in divorce, depending on where you live, is your business is community property, and whether you did a lot of it, or whether you did a little of it, you own 50%. Uh, we kept our business going for a little over a year as co-owners after divorce. And I finally, traveling, decided I can't do this. I, I was still showing up daily and working with my ex. And it, it sort of felt like I wasn't divorced. It felt like I still was dealing with the same exact struggles except now I had also rightfully so a sort of jealous partner that, you know, I was spending more time with my ex than with, and I didn't want that either. Um, eventually that had to kind of come to a close and I had to go through sort of a painful transition of, I gave my business away to another company that I'd invested and I went to work for that new entity as its president in a very foreign role for me because now as an employee for the first time in a long time and at first I had total reins because they didn't know what the heck was going on those reins kept getting stripped away little by little by little as they took more and more on themselves and sort of folded my business into their their enterprise to me, it was just being robbed of every bit of my work soul. I lasted about a year and a half in that arrangement, but proof happened a year into that, that transition.
And so even now, I, I can't say that my eyes and ears are ever closed off to opportunities. Uh, we were regulars of Proof Bread, which at the time was a one farmer's market uh, business, and they had some restaurants. We went to the Gilbert Farmer's Market. We discovered them after being in Europe and tasting real bread. Uh, came back with a mission, had to find real bread here, had to. Stumbled upon Proof, and we bought Proof every single week. Um, so how long from the time you first tasted Proof to the time that you were making 14 proof. months 14 months yeah uh in that time jared actually had just three or four months before we bought proof posted an ad that he needed part-time help and i remember telling amanda hey i kind of want to apply for this i don't have any time i'm i'm the president of a growing software enterprise that uh we're scaling up like crazy yeah, to give you an idea, at that point, we had invested something like $600,000 into our software project. And uh, to think about grabbing a part-time job for $12 an hour at that time was <laughs> sort of insane. Uh, but I was, I was telling her back then, which I used that same exact argument a few months later when I came home and asked her if I could buy proof. Well, it would just be an early morning thing, right? Um uh, so anyway, to cut to the chase of how it all happened, we came back from Poland last year. Uh, my mom is uh, terminally ill with cancer. She's had that for 20 years. She's quite a fighter. She was, say that. That's some fighting spirit there. She was given an 18-month prognosis 20 years ago. Uh, there was a little bit of a scare um, at various times uh, throughout the process. Uh Generally, she wasn't doing all that well last year. We went and visited. It was some of an, an emotionally trying trip. Uh, got back. One of the first things I wanted to do is go to the Gilbert Farmer's Market the next morning to get bread because bread is certainly a comfort for me, at least. It, uh, we show up, and Karen, the person who was selling for Jared, knew us. We, we were there every week, and we bought a peculiar loaf. We bought a two kilo round or four and a half pound loaf. Uh, he only made like four or five of them every week. Who wants that much bread? Well, we did. <laughs> we wanted that loaf to last all week until the next opportunity we had to buy proof bread. There's never a moment without proof bread in the house. Well, and that kind of goes back to the discussion you and I have had about the, the, the idea of fresh bread and, and like fresh bread, may not always be the best bread when you're talking about real bread. When I went to this grain gathering just a month or two ago, I was struck by how many bakers have a disenchanted view of fresh bread. Any, any of us that actually bake bread realize that the normal historical use of bread lasts. You brought me today something that you made from really a, a more of a stale loaf. You, you made a stuffing from it. Yeah. The, what, from two weeks ago? Yeah. And that's, that to me is just the Delicious, tip of that. by the way. Delicious. <laughs> Thanks, Jen. Bread can be used way past its fresh date. Uh, and real bread does not mold. It has flour, water, and salt. It can be stored just with in a linen bag or covered with a kitchen cloth and you can find a use for it well after it goes stale. Um, so what, what, so 
that maybe that's what where I come in. It's like I, I what does stale really mean? Hard. <laughs> that's, okay. That's all it is, right? Is the the bread itself still has these you take pasta and you dry it and then you rehydrate it and you have so you have stale pasta yeah you, certainly <laughs> in your house right now in your pantry you might have some stale pasta uh but that's all that stale bread is right so you can put it in a french onion soup in a broth and and make that make that bread portion of it your recipe might call for a dried out fresh loaf what a waste get a loaf of bread from your local farmer's market, when you're done eating it for sandwiches, preserve it, you know, not by putting it in a plastic bag because a plastic bag will let it mold over time after a couple weeks, even if it's high quality. Go buy bread as gold if you want. If you- we'll, put it, we'll go ahead and put a link uh, in the show notes also so that you can get access to an understanding of what you can use bread for after it is dried out and become stale. Now that I know what stale really means. Yeah. Uh, we'll so go ahead and put that in the show notes. Back to the original question though, on acquiring proof showed up to the farmer's market on that Saturday morning. Karen says he's moving literally no. Hello. No, he's moving. And it took me a second to realize what she meant. My heart immediately sunk. She said, I said, when three weeks, I just remember the feeling that I had because I just had this sort of emotionally tumultuous experience in Poland with my family. And I sort of felt robbed in that moment somehow. (laughs) My mind immediately started going. Again, faced with that barrier. By the following Wednesday, just five days later, I was in Jared's garage with the intent to buy proof learning how to bake bread. I met with him on Tuesday after writing him an email on Monday. And originally I just wrote him an email. I sort of knew there was something there. I told Amanda that I was just trying to get a recipe. (laughs) So sneaky. (laughs) I did go and meet with him. And what was interesting was I asked him, what he was looking to do with proof, if he was interested in selling it and what he was looking to get out of it. I was shocked that to him, the most important thing was not monetizing something that he poured his heart and soul into. He really just wanted to get some of his equipment investment out of it. The number he threw at me was shocking because I really didn't think that I could afford it. What I ended up doing was offering him a higher number over a period of time to repay. And he was really happy with that. I was ecstatic. I went home and I said, well, we can't not buy this bakery. Uh, <laughs> and I asked Amanda and if it was the okay. sleepless nights began. I remember actually... I do remember saying to Amanda that, hey, it's not going to be so bad. I'm going to wake up a little bit earlier than I already do because I was already a morning person. I'm going to wake up at three instead of five and and I'll be done by like 10 or 11 every day. Uh, And I gave her that argument based on the first day that I baked with Jared, which was midweek in the 
slow season of the summer where all he had to do is bake for a couple restaurants, and he was done by roughly that time. Uh, of course, I didn't factor a lot of other things. Uh, so, you know, we, we went The full. entrepreneurial optimism <laughs> kicked in there. Yeah. It's been the most difficult 14 months. That I can't even begin to describe that to you. I very quickly saw my personal life falling apart because it wasn't just a few hours. I was on conference calls as the president of my previous company loading our old oven, saw the opportunity with proof and we dove right in. We didn't reject anything that was already there. I had my blinders on to difficult social relationships that were extremely damaging. Uh, I didn't want to humiliate myself as a new baker. Uh, I refused to acknowledge to people that I was inexperienced. Uh, and so and it really wasn't the inexperience that was the barrier because I had reached a fairly proficient level for this area, at least very quickly. Uh, I had no concept of saying no. Uh, for my previous business, it nine or 10 month sales cycle. So you, you got a client if you had to make crazy modifications to accommodate that client, there's no choice with that type of sales cycle. You just made it work. And I took that approach into proof where really I could get a restaurant account today. I make a few phone calls, bring one of these loaves in the background and I could have a account. Is it a good one? Odds are no. Uh, so you be, you've, with, with proof, it's really adjusted your perspective of a good customer versus a bad customer. Has that, has that brought you to a point of saying, you know what, I'm, I'm, I'm honored that you want me to provide this for your restaurant or your business and you want to showcase this, but it doesn't, it, it's not good for us. It's not good for proof. Has, has, have, you, have you gotten to that point? At a, at a high level of respect for, for this uh, new restaurant, there is a restaurant that reached out to us recently that hasn't quite opened yet. They're opening in the next couple of weeks. And uh, we found out that the chef was actually a former winner of MasterChef, the TV show. We went to meet with them and we're sort of excited at the potential. We're extremely honored that they would consider us first. That initial meeting did lead to us having a discussion and deciding that we didn't feel like it was the right fit. Uh, my former client from Mystery Shopping, the Bashes family of, of stores, uh, which includes AJ as a local grocery chain, also wants our bread. And we actually still want to work with them. We haven't started yet. And we don't intend to any time in the near future because we made a decision that it wasn't the best fit for our current situation. And this was all after a very difficult first lesson when I first bought Proof. We had a particular account that was a seven-day-a-week account. To put this into perspective for you as a baker, it's not 3 to 11 
especially not when you're working farmers markets. Uh, starting on Thursday, we start around midnight on Thursday, and the bakery doesn't stop right now until after the farmers markets are completed on Saturday. I'm talking about a full 24-hour cycle, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and that's what we've optimized to. With the old oven, the moment we added past Gilbert Farmers Market, we saw the revenue right away. We were making a disproportionate amount of revenue from farmers markets versus our nine restaurant accounts that we had when I first bought Proof. But we were working way harder for the restaurant accounts, seven mm -hmm. days a week. Um, and we came to find that the food culture in the restaurant world is incongruent with artisan bread. I would actually argue that restaurants haven't caught up to actual artisanship with the ingredients that they're using. They are unfortunately plagued with Western homogenous delivery on food. Chefs want every single plate to look identical. Consistency is the buzzword that you'll hear at a restaurant over and over again. If you are a Western uh, restaurant patron, you expect that your sandwich is going to be exactly the same as it was the last time. If the bread is slightly different in size, shape, volume, texture, it's just one component of many. You can now start to see the stress of a restaurant chef in the modern day world. I would actually argue that that's not real. I went on a field walk in Washington state at this grain gathering and it was sponsored by grain breeders. So, so what they do is they grow Grain breeder. I haven't heard that before. Yeah, I honestly <laughs> hadn't either. This is a, they, they're called bread lab. What they do is they grow thousands of different varietals of grain and they observe from a scientific level, they have PhDs working there, uh, really geeky, nerdy types that I just fell in love with. Um, anyway, anyway, they uh, observe the various traits during the growing process, both on a qualitative and quantitative level. Then they take the wheat berries, they have them milled next door at a local mill, and they bake with them and they see the performance. And then they hybridize the various strains of wheat for an, an improved natural selection process. It's evolution in real life. It's the way we've been farming for millennia without GMOs. So what they're trying to do is make affordable, high quality wheat uh, so that this type of bread is not, you know, pricing so many people out. Uh, with that in mind, something that's more in line with actual nature as opposed to something that's in line with machines. I can sort of expect this machine in the background to do the same thing over and over again. It's designed to have uniformity, but that's not the way nature works. And this is but one piece of my puzzle. It, everything in here is, is a biological scientific process and it's fed by the starter. Um, you know, the mother starter, which on any given day has a different amount of cells, uh, that are populating, her when I inject her or mix her into the final dough. I'm going to get different results based on temperature. I'm going to get different results based on humidity, based on barometric pressure in the air. Um, unfortunately, it's not realistic for bread that's made at this quality 
to come out 100% uniform. But restaurants want that. The uniform, yeah. So what I found was I was baking seven days a week. I would do that crazy farmer's market run. I was completely capped out of adding any farmer's markets. We got to two and we were completely overwhelmed because we were baking seven days a week for restaurants. I would come home from the markets uh, in the afternoon after basically working two straight days and the next feeding of Harriet, our starter, was just a couple of... Harriet. Yeah. You named the starter Harriet. <laughs> I didn't. Jared named her um, after, after a mother figure in some popular uh, TV show named Harriet. Um, anyhow, the next bake was just a few hours away. There was no time to recharge, to plan, to do anything. We were completely capped from a revenue standpoint. So, yes, the first six months taught me a lot about saying no to customers that don't fit, just purely don't fit your interests. Uh, and over time, we've grown our revenue. We're still working our butts off. We're still not really reaching personal balance yet, but we're getting ever closer while notching up that revenue and that profitability at the same time. So that's awesome. So you've hit on a couple things. Um, you know, you've, you've talked about your, your lessons of getting focused and, and how you've dealt with some of the overwhelm that, that comes from all of this and, and, and going into the meditation. Um, so with this latest, with, with proof, what is the, belief, behavior, or habit outside of the meditation uh, that we've already mentioned that, that has made the biggest change in your life? Whatever I'm spending my time doing and whatever the team is spending their time doing, let's do it to the best of our ability, but let's make sure that it's filling our cups. Uh, let's make sure that the drain is the drain is really only draining out what we want to filter out. Uh, this bakery is sort of a metaphor for that, right? There's very little waste in here. We compost everything, which is then getting recycled, hopefully into good soil um, that is feeding plants that might one day feed that that wheat that uh, is being grown for us and milled for us. Um, the waste is minimal, but I think in our personal lives, we do need to figure out how to filter out waste and filter out things, relationships. That's a difficult one for, for me, at least, as, as a, someone that's driven towards sort of being conflict-averse. I've sort of come to find that some relationships are no longer serving me either, uh, and, and I need to be careful on that. Uh, so would you say, and I'm, I'm just trying to put that all together into all together. philosophy or something? Yeah, well, well <laughs> it, it sounds like it's it's focus on on the things that are important versus focusing on everything, trying to focus on everything. And that's a very subjective experience as well, but I'm okay with that. I don't think that any two people will be able to answer that importance question the same way in fact even amongst our team we often talk about the venn diagram of of their life and proof and 
our life kind of merging and we have this space in the middle where it fits right now. And we have to look at everything as sort of a finite experience. So before I sort of got offended when people wanted to move on in previous businesses, when people worked for me and wanted to move on, now I'm embracing the fact that, you know, we're all on an individual journey and this fits now. Proof fits now. I, for now, I don't see it changing, right? I, I am reluctant to say that proof will never be a part of my life, but uh, statistically in my own life, it's probably likely at some point. If you were to give people one, maximum three things that they can start doing today to help them find that clarity, that balance, that passion for something, what would they be? One that I think is quite important to look at for people is eliminating false limits. And by false limits, I mean, for all intents and purposes, this bakery in most people's minds shouldn't exist. Uh, we're looking at probably a quarter million dollars of revenue this year, uh, up from 80,000 last year. And it's being done in a residential garage completely legally under cottage law. And I'm going to use that as an argument for what other people might see as limit. We talked a lot about breaking down barriers, but there is, there is a barrier that a lot of people would have that would potentially stop them from being a baker. Uh, well, I don't have a space. I don't have equipment. Uh, that can apply to many things. Your garage, your home office might be an opportunity for you. Um, and, and if you're listening to this with no intention to have a business, if we're looking from a life perspective, Maybe asking what are what are false limits in my life? What are what are things that that are barriers that I can actually overcome? Uh, what are barriers that aren't really barriers at all, but I've set them up as such in my paradigm of of life? Uh, I would say that's a really important one. Of course, on my journey, I've started to try to figure out how to limit those opportunities a little bit more because you start to find that they always are there. Uh, opportunities seem to be endless if you're looking out for them. Uh, but if, you're, if you've already mastered that, if you've already started to become open towards opportunity, uh, looking to limit them in the right way is, is also really important. Uh, so that would, that would probably be my, my advice. All right, so what we have here is remove false barriers. So things that you believe to be barriers that you've just put in place to try and protect yourself from potential failure. For sure. Potential fa failure, it's always, at the end of the day, an insecurity. Uh, in this case, the, the example would be, I can't be a baker because I don't have a facility but I think if you really dig deep, it's more, I can't be a baker because of something that lies inside that I'm afraid to express. I can't, 
so there's solutions are there. Uh, I found in, in all the things that I've ever done, uh, there's always a way. Uh, sometimes that path is hard. Sometimes that path is a lot easier than you think. But the path is there. Don't let these false limits stop you from whatever's next. Awesome. And then the last one is limit the opportunities. Yes. <laughs> so, so, I mean, this is something you and I've talked about a lot is, is with creative and with people that have ideas that are always trying to grow their mind, it's easy to overwhelm yourself with opportunities because for folks like yourself and myself, we're always looking at what is the next opportunity or what could be an opportunity and, and having the opportunistic perspective on life, you very easily can overwhelm yourself with opportunity and never get anywhere with, with one of the major items. I believe that opportunity is both my fuel and my kryptonite. I don't think there's any other way for me to describe it. I didn't realize how much of a kryptonite opportunity could be and really until this one. Uh, we are limited. We, we are finite in our ability to do any amount of things that opportunity costs. Those of you who are still learning about that in, in maybe a formal economics class is, is real. Pay attention to that lesson. If, if nothing else, uh, it's definitely real. So before we close out, I want to make sure that everybody knows where to find you. Um, the best place to find you would be where right now I would say the most sort of intimate place to find us would be at a farmer's market stand in Phoenix. Um, we're all over. You can figure out where our current market lineup is though on our website, proofbread.com. If you don't live in Phoenix, Instagram is probably a great place to keep in touch. We share a lot of our day-to-day -day journey. Uh, we're proofbred on Instagram. Uh, and my personal handle is just proof.baker right now. Uh, seems fitting for the, for the given moment. It does. It does. <laughs> uh, with that said, you might be listening and, and Phoenix or, or bread might, might be a little bit, um, separate from you. But if you happen to have any interest in baking, uh, we would love for you guys to come visit, uh, and even work here for a period of time and stage that it's common one of our bakers, uh, we miss her dearly. Annalisa is wrapping up a three-month visit to a bakery in Tasmania. And I would love it if we created this culture around the world of sharing ideas within this space. Uh, so those are just some avenues, I, I suppose. Uh, right now, we are not shipping our, our product, although we are coming out with some merchandise. Uh, if you like our story, um, it, even stuff like linen bags, the story of bread is something that we hope to do, uh, soon on our website, proofbread.com. Uh, I'm not sure if we'll ever be shipping our, our artisan bread, at, at least not outside of Phoenix. We do want to do same day delivery here, uh, for people that live in this area. Uh, I would encourage everyone to seek out their local baker though. And, and that's one of the reasons why 
might not ever ship. Uh, if you live in Tucson and I send you bread down there, you're missing out on Don Guerra's bread at Barrio Bread. Uh, if you live in other markets, there's probably a community baker there. That so what's the, what's the best way for someone to find a local bread for them then? Follow us on Instagram and write us a direct message. We're connected to the bakeries around the world. Uh, just happen to be a small community. So most likely, if you write us a message, say, hey, I live in wherever, Denver, Colorado, I could definitely refer you to Babette Bread there. It, you know, I, depending on your market, I might know exactly where you should start. Fantastic. Well, this is going to be a great resource for those of you who really, really love bread. Um, this is one of the best experiences. I, I have have a very severe intolerance with with gluten and and bread, and I don't get along. Um, but the way that John bakes his bread um, is something that I've actually been able to enjoy. And um, can I actually put a plug in for that? Sure. So, forget about proof for a second. Uh, at the conference I was just at, one of the talks by a Yale professor was why women stop baking at home and why it matters. Part of the talk was going into the fact that up until fairly recent history, 80% of our calories were coming from grains and a Western diet that would have been bread. Uh, gluten sensitivity and the way that it makes people feel is real. People do feel bloated and generally lethargic after eating unfermented gluten. And that's the key right there. I would encourage everyone to do personal study and research on this and seek out bakers that are allowing you to eat a staple in your diet and grain. Bakers that are willing to ferment their bread for a longer period of time Ask your baker at your local farmer's market, do you use commercial yeast? Um, I would argue that it's best if they say no, although there might be some exception to that. Uh, 10 grams of commercial yeast has leavening power of 50 kilograms of sourdough starter, meaning it cuts down that fermentation time. And there is definitely a linear relationship between the length of fermentation and the increase in digestibility. It's not necessarily gluten that's your enemy, as Ted and I talked about, uh, phytates in whole wheat. So if you go and find whole wheat bread, um, the I believe it's the germ of the wheat berry that contains phytic acid, which blocks magnesium and zinc absorption. White flour doesn't actually have that, uh, because you're only using the endosperm of the wheat berry. Whole wheat has great nutritional properties, minus the phytates. Fermentation is the key to neutralizing them. Uh, so look for long fermented foods. All right. Well, I like pickles. I like pickled onions. I, I, I like I like fermented foods, so that only is fitting to my love for sourdough. And it's sustainable. If... If people listening to this uh, are studying sustainability or wondering how we can have a more sustainable food system, uh, bread fits into a greater lifestyle of eating fermented foods that have been preserved from seasonal fruits and veggies. 
which I would hope more and more people revert back to. We were very genius um, prior to modern refrigeration, our ability to take seasonal fruits and veggies at harvest and make them last all year through fermentation. Uh, just so happens that bread in its truest form, my opinion, sourdough form, is also fermented food right up there. It's a, it's a beautiful uh, way of, of dealing with food items. And what I find fascinating is just how different the digestibility is at the end, just through the process of fermentation, basically fundamentally changing something in, in that process. It's kind of interesting to me. Well, fantastic. Well, thanks again, John. I appreciate all the time going through all of this. Um, we'll have tons of links in the show notes, be able to get to everything we've talked about, uh, give you access to John and his team to really help you find the bread that is best for you. That's it for this episode of the Ted Huff Show. But we know you're wondering where you go from here. TedHuff.com makes it easy for you to get notifications for new episodes, specialized contests, exclusive giveaways, and upcoming events simply by signing up for our mailing list. You'll get access to all this and more by visiting TedHuff.com. That's T-E-D-D-H-U-F-F.com. Until next time, open your mind and expand your empire right here on the Ted Huff Show.